are continuing in our series going through the book of Ephesians, and we're going to get straight into our passage this morning, which is Ephesians 4, verses 1 to 16. So if you have your Bibles, uh, just open up to Ephesians 4, verses 1 to 16. It'll be on the screen as well. Um, but just as you might be turning there, just want to give you a bit of background to this, uh, to this section in Ephesians. Um, at the moment, we've hit this transition point in the book of Ephesians. Now, if you were here last week, you would remember that Paul prays this, uh, this magnificent prayer at the end of Ephesians 3, and this prayer is the turning point or the hinge in the whole book of Ephesians. Paul goes from speaking uh, abstract, large theological truths, and he moves after this into speaking into practical everyday life in how we can apply this uh, into our lives. Now, a couple of weeks ago, Diana uh, Cesari, who is our children's worker, she spoke through parts of Ephesians 2 and Ephesians 3 and spoke about this new unity that we have under Jesus. This is part of our identity in Christ. But here, what Paul does is he moves from speaking about unity as this abstract truth to it, uh, what it looks like to be practical, hands-on in how we live it out. So Ephesians 4, 1 to 16, and it says, As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. That's what we read earlier on today. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe." Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his body, uh, to equip his people for works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up, till we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ." Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves, and blown here and there by every wind of teaching, and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of Him who is the head, that is, Christ. From Him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. In the 1970s, there were different experiments being, uh, being done to determine the effects of drugs on human, uh, on human beings as drugs became more and more prevalent throughout society of that day. Now, obviously, the experiments that were needing to be done on the effects of people, they, uh, the experiments, experiments weren't actually being done on people and all the experiments were being done on rats. Uh, the experiments found that if a rat was placed in a cage by itself and was off 
offered two different water bottles, one which was plain water and one water bottle that was laced with uh, some form of drug like heroin or co cocaine, uh, then the rats would always go towards the bottles that were laced with the, uh, with the drugs. Now, the rats would continue to drink this drug-laced water to the neglect of food and eventually they would all either overdose or starve to death due to, uh, due to drinking this, uh, this water. Now, um, this, uh, this series of events would happen again and again, but this American psychologist, whose name was Dr. Bruce Alexander, decided to set some different parameters around this experiment, and rather than simply placing rats in cages on their own with these two different options, he placed these rats in little rat communities with other rats, and then he placed these two options in, uh, in front of them. He thought, what if you try this same experiment but allow the rats to interact with other rats? What if they weren't isolated in their own cages but could be in these little rat communities? The experiment has become famously known as the Rat Park experiment because Dr. Bruce Alexander created these little rat parks and gave the option to the rats whether they wanted the drug-laced water or if they wanted the regular water. This time, the rats were among other rats and were free to roam and play and socialise with their little rat buddies. But this time, the results were vastly different from the other experiments done. This time, the rats consistently went for the plain water and not the drug-laced water. Any time they did drink the drug-laced water, it was never done obsessively like it had been done when they were in individual cages, and no rats this time died from starving themselves or from overdosing. So this social community of rats was able to beat the power of drugs. There was something through the rats having community with one another around them that changed something, it switched something within their brains and they didn't have this craving or the desire for these other things anymore. Now, this experiment simply proved something that is taught all throughout Scripture again and again, which is the importance of community. A lot of the time when, uh, when different things are realised and understood within, uh, within our local community, within our society today, often these are things that have already been taught throughout Scripture, and this is one of those things, the importance of community. And that's part of what Paul is saying here. There are these two big truths that Paul is trying to communicate throughout this passage in Ephesians 4, and the first one is this very seemingly simple truth that we need one another. We need each other. Over and over again in these verses, there's this language of togetherness, being built up together, each part doing its work, the leaders enabling the church, and then the church growing in community. We need one another. There's been a new term that's been used to uh, describe certain aspects of the society that we live in. Over the past 70 or so years post-World War, uh, post War II, there's been a lot of different shifts very rapidly within, uh, within Western society. And one of the shifts that's happened throughout that time is the rise in individualism. And now there has been this new phrase coined is that we live in a, uh, in a culture of hyper-individualism. Living 
living in this hyper-individualistic society. It's a, uh, it's a society where we retreat more and more into ourselves. And for, for many people, whether they acknowledge it or not, relationships with other people or even interaction with other people can be viewed as either redundant or unnecessary. And this is made even easier with the, uh, with the developments of technology and the ability to work from home. Now, there's plenty of, of research that shows that hyper-individualism is very negative for a human being, psychologically, physically, in many different ways, uh, being isolated and having a hyper-individualism is very unhealthy for us. Most of us would have had some form of understanding of that throughout the pandemic. Now, for, for many of us here in, uh, here in Brisbane, we weren't locked down to anywhere to the same, uh, to the same extent as many other states or, uh, or people around the world. And yet, for all of us, we still would have had some sense that this is not good for us to be alone. And the pandemic just heightened and, uh, and made quicker an already existing problem and made us more individualistic. Now, there is aspects of, uh, of individualism that's not uh, a negative thing. Generally speaking, it means that, uh, that you understand that your actions are your own and you are responsible for them. It helps you understand that the world doesn't owe you anything in particular and you actually have to work something, uh, work hard in your life to make something with yourself. It means that you can't blame others for the silly things that you have done. When it comes to faith in particular, it means that your faith in one aspect is your own and it's not inherited from your parents. But hyper-individualism has led to many issues within our society. Michael Bonner, a writer in the City Journal, he writes this, marriage rates, fertility and household sizes have all declined dramatically since the mid-20th century. Social networks are getting smaller. Time spent alone is rising. Three in 10 households consist of, only, of one person. Only 30% of Americans think that they can reliably trust one another. And 16% of Americans feel strongly attached to their local community. Only 16% of Americans feel strongly attached to their local community. And my guess is the stats for Australia would be fairly similar. Now, the problem that we face is that community doesn't feel as necessary anymore. Because although our individualism has increased, a certain level of connection has never been higher. Due to the, uh, to the internet and social media in particular, we can fool ourselves into equating community with connection. We can think that because we have connection in some way or form throughout the internet, that that is the same as having genuine, deep community with other people. Even when we do gather with other people, we are still connected throughout, uh, to the whole world through just our phones, through these little things here. And they can distract us from experiencing real deep relationship, which we can experience in the here and now. Now, you might be thinking as I'm saying all of this, okay, Dave, that's wonderful to hear. So the solution to all of this is to find some community. Great, I'll join the local sporting club or I'll hang out with my mates at a concert more, I'll start playing bingo or something like that. But the community that Paul is speaking to here, it's not any club or interest group, it's the church, 
It's the gathering. Due to our hyper-individualism, we can, we can be led towards thinking that faith is only an individual thing, and there is an aspect of our faith being our own, but in another sense, it's not just our own. Our faith is a corporate thing. At no stage in the entire Bible is the idea of living the Christian life on your own there. Faith is not an isolated activity. In fact, it seems to be the case through what Paul is saying here, that your level of spiritual growth is directly linked to the level of community and relationships that you have with other believers. So, if you want to grow in your faith, ask the question, how is my relationship with other believers? Do you have good, honest relationships with others in the church where you keep one another accountable, where you talk in genuine, authentic ways about how you're going? Your spiritual growth is directly linked to how you experience community with other believers. So we need one another. That's so clear. But then Paul also takes it this one step further, and he tells us, in more words than this, that we are to be good to one another. Look at Paul's language here. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. In two verses here, we're given five doing words of how we are to be with one another. Be humble, gentle, patient, loving, and peaceful. Why does he say this? Why does this matter for us? Well, he goes on in the next verses essentially to say that we are one. This is the why that we should be these things. Why should we do this? Because there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, a lot of ones, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So the reason that we be these things for, for one another, the reason that we are humble, gentle, patient, loving, and peaceful is because we are united under one who is Jesus. If you are a Christian, whether you like it or not, you are united with this wide family, all believers around the whole world. That includes the ones who you voted differently from in the referendum. That includes the ones who annoy you. That includes the ones who you disagree with theologically. You are united with all other believers under Christ. And because of that, there is a certain way that we are told to interact with other believers. We are to be humble, gentle, patient, loving, and peaceful. We are to be good to one another. Now, for many of you, as I say this, you might be thinking that's a beautiful picture of the church, Dave, but for many of you, and for many of you, I imagine, joining with us online, that hasn't always been your experience in the church with other believers. For many of us here today, we may have experienced a certain amount of pain uh, in our lives due to other people from the church. Now, one of the primary reasons that people might disconnect from a church, but particularly the church, is because of the issues that they have faced with another believer. For many people, this has caused them 
to give up on the whole idea of church altogether. This has become prevalent within churches, that there is now this term that can be, uh, that can be said, which is this term church hurt, which has commonly become the thing that refers to someone's pain that they've experienced within the church. People have even taken Paul's words in verse 15, speaking the truth in love as an excuse to be hurtful and rude towards other believers. Now, being completely honest, for me personally, I have experienced this. I haven't always had the best experience with, uh, with people within the church. Now, you might be thinking, but Dave, that's because you're a pastor. You spend all your time around people in the church, and that's just kind of, a, kind of a given. Now, that might be true right now. Yes, I'm a pastor of the church, but I just want to let you know I wasn't born preaching and pastoring a church. I haven't been a pastor for my whole life. Throughout my life, there's been different pain that I've experienced through, uh, through people in the church, experienced things that are hardly are humble, gentle, patient, loving, and peaceful. And for many of you here today, this has been your experience as well. And I'm guessing for many of you online, this has been your experience. And so, on behalf of the church, I just want to offer an apology. Now, if you have been the instigator of any of that sort of thing, I also want you to seek forgiveness from your, from your brother and, uh, brothers and sisters. Now, if you have experienced this, I particularly want to speak to, to those of you joining with us online. If you have experienced this before, this is not a reflection of the worldwide church, nor is it a reflection of the head of the church, Jesus. I would actually say that this is a reflection more than anything of the culture that we live in. We live in this meanness culture. It's a world of the keyboard warrior where people will hurl insults towards one another and abuse people that they disagree with behind a screen. If you spend two minutes on any social networking site and you look at the comments, you'll find lots of comments that exist purely to bring people down and offend others. Even just this past week, I'm part of a, uh, of a Facebook group where there are different pastors who are, are sharing ideas about different sermons, uh, and this one person, in a very uh, uh, general way, was just asking for some advice, and unfortunately, this person who was asking for advice just seemed to get attacked by these other church leaders in this comment section with some mean and nasty, uh, nasty comments. Unity today... Contrary description is based around, within our society, being mean to one another rather than being good to one another. But here Paul pushes again and again how believers are to interact with one another. This is made worse by this, uh, this herd mentality that our society has. A herd mentality is when you hear a certain point of view or opinion and you agree with it solely based on the fact that people around you agree with it. There was quite an amusing example of this in the, uh, in the news over the past month or so. Recently, there was a major international blunder that took place in the Canadian Parliament. Some of you may have seen this. The, uh, the Speaker of the House stood to his feet and welcomed a special guest 
who was Yaroslav Hunka, a Canadian and Ukrainian veteran who fought in World War II. Now, when the speaker rose to his feet, he introduced this special guest speaker as a hero of World War II who heroically fought against the Russians in the war. And at this stage, every single parliamentarian rose and stood to their feet and gave Yaroslav a massive round of applause. But as soon as I heard this, as soon as I heard why the speaker was getting this person uh, to, uh, to stand to their feet and got a big round of applause, there was this glaring question that I had. Can anyone think of the glaring question? During World War II, we, along with the... Exactly. <laughs> most of you seem to, uh, to understand this. During World War II, we, along with the Canadians, fought with the Russians not against them. Why was everyone standing together and giving this man a round of applause? Now, it turns out that this man had actually been a Nazi SS troop during World War II and had personally overseen the execution of a vast number of Jews. He had personally fought against the Canadians in World War II, and here is every single parliamentarian standing to their feet and giving him a standing ovation. And this is after the fact that the speaker had said that this man fought against the Russians. So surely, I just, I was thinking as I was hearing this, surely someone would have thought what many of us thought right now, that something was a little bit off here. And yet because everyone around them stood to their feet and gave a round of applause, everyone else rose and, uh, and applauded this man. This is what a herd mentality can look like, through just you doing what everyone around you is doing, even if it is the wrong thing. Paul's point is that the church of Jesus Christ should look different than this, it should be a contrast in how we live. We should be different compared to the rest of the world around us. Herd mentality shouldn't exist within us. We shouldn't be guided toward, by unkindness towards people, and particularly not in the church itself. We should be noticed as different, marked by our humility, gentleness, patience, love, and peacefulness. You, as an individual, have an opportunity to be different uh, than the world around you that you might be in. When every single person around you is sharing gossip or nastiness about someone, you have the opportunity to be better than that. We are very good for those of you who are or have been parents. Most of us are very, very good at teaching this to our children. There was a lesson that I was taught as a child, which was, don't say anything unless you ask these questions, uh, which is, is it true, is it necessary, and is it kind? These were questions that came from a, uh, uh, from a man called uh, Bernard Meltzer. These were some questions that I was taught as a, uh, as a child, but from my experience, it seems that sometimes children can be better at this than us as adults in how we talk to one another. But this is Paul's point. 
How you talk to others, how you interact with one another, it matters. Treating one another that blesses rather than tears down, regardless of differences, is the thing that demonstrates Jesus to the world more strongly than anything else that we do. Now, unfortunately, these words, when I look at these words of Paul, they don't come naturally to me. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Now, just a a bit of vulnerability right now. I'm naturally quite a frustrated person. I can get annoyed more easily than some others, and this is something that I need to work on and pray through every single day. This is not something that happens for me naturally, but my guess it's not something that happens naturally for any of us in the room. There's a level of intentionality that's required to make living this out possible. And so for me, to help me, there is a prayer that I pray every single morning, a consistent prayer every single day that I do during my devotional time, which is this prayer. Every morning I pray this. Father, Help me to live this day to the full, being true to you in every way. Jesus, help me to give myself away to others, being kind to everyone I meet. Spirit, help me to love the lost, proclaiming Christ in all I do and say, amen. I need this in my life. I need to pray this every single day to remind me and encourage me and to invite the Spirit of God to enable me to be kind to every single person that I come into contact with. I need to pray this every day so that I do live out the love of Jesus with those I come in contact with. This doesn't happen automatically and for most of us this won't happen automatically. We need to constantly remind ourselves of our need for God to help us and enable us to do this. And this is something that you are able to do. When you wake up, you are able to say this prayer for yourself. Father, help me to live this day to the full, being true to you in every way. Jesus, help me to give myself away to others. Help me be kind to everyone I meet. Spirit, help me love the lost, proclaiming Christ in all I do and say, Amen. If the worship team wants to come up, that'd be great. Now, throughout Scripture, there's something that was a demonstration of everything that I have spoken about today. There was this practical, tangible demonstration of what it meant to be this community under Christ as the head, and that demonstration was the practice of communion, which is what we're going to do uh, in just a minute. If you haven't received any, uh, any communion elements, can you just put your hand up right now and one of our welcome team will, uh, will be able to grab you something. Communion was a communal act. That's why it's called communion. Um, it was a demonstration of remembering the death and resurrection of Jesus. But it was also just as much about remembering the unity that we now have in Jesus as a church community because of what Jesus has done. So Jesus' death on the cross, it's what paved for us to be in relationship with God, but it is also the thing that paved the way for us to be in relationship with one another. 
In 1 Corinthians, Paul writes a letter to the church in Corinth, reprimanding them for the fact that when they have taken communion uh, together, um, there have been lack of unity and divisions among them. Paul's point here is that communion should be the thing that demonstrates our unity. Communion should be the thing that unites us and helps us and reminds us that we are one under Jesus Christ, that we need one another and we need to be good to one another. And so we're going to take communion in just a moment, both to remember the sacrifice of Jesus that he made for us on the cross but also as a demonstration of our unity with one another. So just spend some time right now, just in this moment. Just think about the blood and the body of Jesus, the blood that was poured out for you, the body that was broken for you, and how that has won you to relationship with God, but also won you into community with other believers. First Corinthians eleven twenty three to twenty six it says, "For I received from the Lord what was passed, also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me.' Let's eat together." same way after supper he took the cup saying this is the new covenant in my blood do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes strength together So, King Jesus, we thank you for what you have achieved on the cross. Through your blood poured out and your body broken for us, we are now able to experience new life. But as we experience this new life, would you help us to live this out in practical ways? Lord, we thank you that you didn't just buy us into relationship with you, but you brought us into relationship with one another. We now experience family here in the church. And so, Lord, help us to be good to one another, to be kind to one another, to be humble, peaceful, patient, gentle, loving with one another. Help us to extend the love that you showed to us, King Jesus, towards one another. And Lord, as we do this, we pray that as we love one another, that the world may see our love for each other. And 
they might recognize not just a group of people who love one another, but the fact that we are doing this out of a response of a God who has loved us so deeply and intimately, that you would choose to go to the cross for us. So we thank you for everything that your death and your resurrection means for us. Enable us to help us live this out in our everyday lives. In Jesus' name.